0: Uh, do you know what the most controversial part of Jesus' ministry was? Was it casting out demons? That was pretty controversial. Yeah. Raising Lazarus, that was pretty, pretty controversial, the miracles that he performed. Yeah, that was pretty controversial. Uh, was it uh, his interpretation of scripture, maybe? That, that certainly got the, uh, the Pharisees talking. Was it who he chose to be his disciples? He had some sketchy disciples. No. Uh, The most controversial part of Jesus' ministry in terms of his practice was who he ate with. How Jesus did relationships got more criticism than any any other practice uh, in his ministry. And we see this time and time again throughout scripture when you read through the New Testament. Uh, Jesus spent the majority of his time intentionally connecting Uh, with with all the people uh, that the society uh, at the time and the culture at the time would marginalize and look down upon. And he spent very little time connecting with those whom the culture uh, uh, revered. And Jesus' vision uh, for doing this has moved through the centuries and still reaches us here today. See, ultimately what Jesus' vision was was to create space for people far from God to encounter his scandalous welcome uh, of grace. And if we are going to be people who follow Jesus well in Denver, Colorado in 2022, uh, what that means is the way in which we do relationships may also be controversial. Uh, If you are not stepping out of your comfort zones uh, into uncomfortable places in your relational circles, you you may not be following Jesus well. Uh, If you're not extending your boundaries of association, you may not be following uh, Jesus well. If you're not asking God to deal with the hard places of your heart, so that you can be a witness and a testimony to the people in your life who are far from God, Uh, you may not be following uh, Jesus well. And here's why this matters. Uh, People all around us, they ache for belonging. They ache for welcome. They ache uh, to be known. Psychologists would tell us that much of our our modern-day society is being defined as being in and being out, and what that means is that each of you personally has uh, an in-crowd, Uh, This is defined as a circle of empathy. And and most people, the psychologists would tell us, can have about 9 to 16 people inside of their uh, circle of empathy. And and what it means is is that psychologically, in our brains, we withdraw compassion from the people who are outside of our circle of empathy, and we reallocate that compassion to the people who are inside. Now, this is a good thing uh, because it's how you build a community. But it can also be a a really destructive thing because what we inadvertently start doing is perpetually creating a society where we are constantly withdrawing compassion and empathy from people who are outside of our cultural circles and our relational circles and reallocating it to those uh, who are on the inside. And, And the result of this is it can leave people feeling lonely and disconnected and on the outside. Uh, so much of the the promiscuous nature of our modern day society, uh, we talk about this all the time. It's not it's not just purely pleasure. It's not purely hedonism. Uh, I think really what it is is it's it's a a cry to belong, a cry to be known. I just want somebody to want me, even if it's only for a night. Uh, I think the reason why uh, you've heard it maybe said before that Denver's an enneagrams three city. Uh, that means that we're a city that is uh, structured on performance and achievement. And I think the reason for that, why people will work themselves into an oblivion, is they think to themselves, at least at my job, I have a seat at the table. At least here, I'm known. The reason why people will give themselves over to politics and to hobbies is because when I, when I step inside that circle, they know me. I belong here. I'm welcome. The ache for belonging and connection is core to the human heart. And to follow Jesus is to learn to meet that ache with the grace of God other people. A a defining purpose for our lives as followers of Jesus that I think probably doesn't get talked about uh, enough is is the very reason why uh, Jesus came. Um, Bringing Jesus' vision of restoration to people far from God and creating opportunities for them to experience his welcome and scandalous invitation of grace and life-giving ways. Uh, Pay attention to what the Apostle Paul teaches us, in 2 Corinthians 5. This is what he says. He says, God has done all of this. God went to the cross for you, He he paid the penalty for your sins. He died on the cross and he was raised three days later from the dead. And he did this so that he could restore our relationship with him through Christ, number one. But number two, and this is the part that we often forget about, and he has given us this ministry of restoring relationships. So put another way, that the central defining purpose for why Jesus came, the, the, the whole reason why we celebrate Christmas. It was for Jesus to restore connection between God and man with the hope that we, as his followers and as his children, filled with the Holy Spirit, would carry on his vision of relational restoration into our homes and into our familial circles and with our friends and our places of work. Uh, But I think the problem that many of us sit in this morning is is that for many of us, Jesus' vision of restoration in practice, or I should say on the screen seems good, but in practice is much more difficult uh, you know, it could be easy to create bridges relationally with strangers, but what happens when the relational tensions in our lives are with the people who we are closest to? Uh, some of you walk through these doors this morning, uh, and you're feeling disconnected from God and from people. Uh, so some of you walk through here, and you feel like I'm lacking connection in my life, like I'm d de- Uh, hydrated Uh, during the one season where we're supposed to feel most connected to each other uh, some of you are are parents with with adult kids and and this is the time of the year where you see your kids and and it feels like there's some distance and and maybe there's been some relational walls uh, that have been put up and so when you come together it's painful and there's tension Uh, others of you uh, you are your kids with adult parents and the thought, of I, the thought of going home for the holidays is difficult for you because it feels like you might be stepping into environments uh, where, where there's a long history of dysfunction and disappointment and maybe even some trauma. Or uh, you're just frustrated because you're 35 years old and when you go home uh, for Christmas, your parents still treat you like you're 16. Like, Derek, clean your room before you go out with your friends. And then parents are like, well, I can ask my 35-year-old son to clean his room because I'm still paying for his car insurance. I got you, parents, okay? Yeah, we don't get a free pass. That's right, that's right. Others of you, you're married. Uh, in the Christmas season is the, the time where it feels like bitterness and resentment might start to, to gain a foothold uh, in your marriage. I was talking to a friend this week, and he just told me that for whatever reason it is around the holidays, uh, the tensions that exist between him and his spouse and, and the tensions that they feel around each other just seem to be elevated, Uh, around the Christmas season and walls of disconnection start to be built. Uh, For some of you, you're not married and the holidays are a sober reminder of what it feels like to spend Christmas alone. Uh, Here's what I've learned about Christmas, what I've come to know over the years. Uh, Christmas is a wonderful season and what it tends to do is amplify a really good season if you're in one and if that's you today, if you walk in through these doors and it is a season of joy, man, I wanna celebrate you, like celebrate with you. We are with you. Uh, but what I've also learned about Christmas is that it equally has the power to amplify really difficult seasons. Uh, it seems like our relational disconnection is highlighted during the season and it just jumps off the page. And so today I want to share with you God's vision of restoration. And I want to see if we can't learn something from Jesus' approach uh, to relationships with a hope that we too can experience Uh, restored relationships this Christmas season, and I specifically want to look at two moments in scripture where Jesus's radical vision of restoration comes to life. And both, you'll notice, are going to happen around meals. And the first uh, is a scripture here in Matthew 9. Now oftentimes we put the scripture up on the screen and we read through it, and I really just want you to pay attention to what's happening in God's word. Notice how wildly radical what Jesus is doing in this scene. So he says, uh, the the gospel writer Matthew, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man uh, named Matthew at the tax collector booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. You have no idea how significant of a decision that was, what Matthew was leaving behind. Uh, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked Jesus' disciples, they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the first thing that I want to point out is that Jesus used the table differently. Now, to understand what's happening in this particular text, uh, it's interesting because when we think about Jesus, we rarely think about the table. Uh, meals at the time of Jesus were central to the life of God. Uh, the table was infused with spirituality. Uh, the Hebrew community uh, in first century Judea, they, they practice a particularly rigid form of discipline when it came to their meals. And what this means is that they believe that sharing your table with people who were not a part of God's covenant community, the the Israelites, it would pollute you. It would pollute you. And so what that means is is that they would never make space at their table for what were known as Gentiles. They believed Gentiles were dogs. It was their immorality and their habits and their behavior uh, that violated the holy standards of the day, and if that feels far off, words like Gentiles and and, and, and holiness, uh, just pay attention in your own heart this Christmas season to to maybe the judgments that you might have towards other people who have a different lifestyle than you. Pay attention to how you might look down upon uh, somebody who does not walk the same road that you walk. And so, what this means is that the table was a boundary marker for the people who were holy and unholy, and it was also used as a way to rank people. Socially, uh, some of you may remember Jesus's rebuke uh, in, the, in the Gospel Matthew where he says, you, you Pharisees, you love to come into the banquet halls, you love to sit at the front of the table in your VIP seats where all can see you. So what that means is, is that when you walked into a Jewish rabbi's house, very quickly you could see that all the important people were seated at one side of the table, and all the interns were at the other side of the table. And so you could walk in and you could say, okay, who do I need to show honor to? And also, who can I overlook Who is important in this home, and who really doesn't matter? The design of it created separation. It was very hard to elevate socially in this type of environment as well, and it meant that you were basically stuck and calcified uh, in your position in society. And and this has happened in U.S. culture uh, as well. One picture gives us all we need to see. From this, that we can see that we, too, In our past, have created structures of separation, social stratification, division. Now the Pharisees they also had a vision of restoration. Now it was a much different vision than what Jesus had, uh, but there were it was actually a movement that was called the Pharisees, a renewal movement. And Israelites at the time of Jesus uh, they were trying to answer the central question: Why is it that in Israel we are occupied by the Romans, when God has given us covenant promises that say that we are supposed to be? the ones in charge, like where have we gone wrong in following God? And so the Pharisees, this party, they come along and they say, ah, we got the answer. Here's what it is. We're not taking the law seriously enough. Our standard of obedience needs to elevate. God promises that if we obey him, he will bless us and and we're clearly not being blessed. So therefore we're not obeying enough. And they had this idea that on the surface, you know, sounds pretty good, but they went to the Old Testament law. If you've ever read through Leviticus, you know that there were a set of of holy rituals and priestly standards, purification rituals, that the Levitical priests would have to undergo before they stepped into the presence of God in the temple. They had to consecrate themselves before they stepped into the holy of holies, so that they would not violate the perfect presence of God. And what the Pharisees said was what if we take those purification rituals and we apply them to all people and we make every home a temple and every table an altar? Then if we raise that standard of obedience, God might just see us back in his good graces and he might remove the Romans. And so you can see that it actually started with good intentions. And so off they go, these Pharisees on their brand new renewal campaign. And this was predominantly centered around food and how the table uh, was used. And so you can imagine that very quickly, very quickly, you could see who took religion seriously and who did not take religion seriously. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and and what you're going to see about Jesus is he's going to start to refer to this Pharisee renewal campaign as the traditions of men, and he is going to launch an all-out rage campaign uh, against them because they are taking the non-essential requirements of the law, and they are putting unduly burdens on people that makes it more difficult for them to access the presence of God. People who were struggling to obey as it was. So, on one end, you have to understand this picture of Jesus sitting at this table with these tax collectors. On one end, you have the Pharisees who are making every home a temple, every table an altar. And on the other end, you have the tax collectors who are the most hated people in society. These are Hebrew nationals, people of their own kind, who sold out to go work for the Romans. Uh, Can you imagine a more hated figure than somebody who is extorting your own people for the sake of the enemy? Uh, Tax collectors were completely despised and they were looked upon with disgust by all who saw them. And so it was so scandalous when Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, you know what? Get the table ready. Matt and his friends, let's go. Let's party. Let's party. Let's get together. You and all your buddies. Uh, You can almost imagine the 12 disciples coming to Jesus and saying, "Uh, Jesus, I appreciate your messianic claims, uh, and also thank you so much for the miracles. I really, really enjoyed the miracles. But please, for the love of God, tell me you did not invite Matthew. Yeah, Matt's coming. Matt's coming, and we're partying tonight. It's on. It's on. That's what Jesus said. It was so scandalous for the time. And so when the Pharisees walk by the house and they see Matthew and this group of of ragtag people sitting at this table, they are completely disgusted. And the Pharisees ask this pointed question. They say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Put another way, why is he violating the holy standards of our day? And on hearing this, Jesus gives this remarkable answer. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means, Pharisees. What an insult. What an insult to the religious leaders of the day. You're not reading your Bible correctly. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has a completely controversial, completely countercultural view of what relational restoration looked like compared to all the other movements of his day. And for Jesus, the table was seen as a place of welcome. The table was not seen as a place of exclusion, but a place of inclusion. Uh, The table was seen not as a place of destruction, but of restoration, of spiritual healing. And so Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And now sinners, in the context of the Bible, were not what we traditionally think of sinners as, as the morally disobedient Sinners at the time of Jesus were all the people who were not a part of the Pharisee party uh, who were unable to obey because of either restrictions on their own capacity to pay for things because it was really expensive to abide by these standards. Or they just flat out said, uh, your standards of holiness do not agree with what we read in the Bible, and so we're not going to obey. And the Pharisees didn't know what to do with these people, so they categorized them as liberals. They categorized them uh, as as, uh, lukewarm and as sinners. And they put these boundaries around those people. And then Jesus comes along with all these tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus tells them the very purpose of his vision of restoration. Here's his answer. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. And this makes so much sense. If God is about saving people, then he has to go to the people who need salvation. If God is about healing people, then he has to go to those who are in need of healing, to those who are sick. And the Pharisees, they completely miss the heart of God's mission in the world. They thought it was about preserving moral purity and distancing themselves from all the people who would violate their holiness standards and maybe risk making them unrighteous. And God's heart was about rescuing a sick humanity. Isn't that remarkable? In Jesus' vision, the table was a place of radical healing, of familial healing, of relational healing, and spiritual healing. Uh, the second story I want to point you to uh, is the second meal that Jesus has in the New Testament. And this time, Jesus goes over to a Pharisee's house by the name of Simon. Uh, and we've got to remember that Jesus also ate with Pharisees, so don't be so self-righteous that you think to yourself, I won't eat with a Pharisee, right? Jesus still ate with the perceived uh, enemy, And, uh, you know, Jesus is sitting across the table. You can almost imagine the scene happening with this Pharisee. And and the Pharisee is kind of looking at Jesus, thinking to himself, I wonder how committed this guy is to our traditions. I'm going to test him out and just kind of see what he thinks. And as they're having this conversation, all of a sudden, a woman that's described as living a sinful life walks into the home, and she kneels at Jesus' feet. And tears are flowing down her, her face, and she starts to wipe and to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. And the Pharisee looks at him with judgment, and he thinks in his heart, there's no way that this is the Son of God. There's no way that this man can be a prophet, because if he knew who that woman was, There's no way he would allow her to touch him. And this is so controversial. Uh, Sometimes we think that when we read the Bible, like the things that were scandalous and controversial at the time of Jesus would not be scandalous and controversial today. Uh, Just imagine this scene for a moment. Imagine Jesus is a part of Restoration Church. Okay, and Jesus uh, decides that he's going to go over to uh, Illegal Pete's on Evans, and he's going to meet with a uh, fundamentalist uh, theology professor of high rank. And they're going to have a little meal over some tacos at Illegal Pete's. And so they're sitting there talking uh, and and, and the, 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 not the Pharisee, the self-righteous theology professor, he says to Jesus, I don't like your church. You're non-denominational, which means that you lack the theological courage to assign yourself to a tradition. I don't like that. Uh, I don't like your bathroom setup. It's kind of hard to access, especially if you're a guy. (laughs) And and what's with all young people? Like, don't they have anything better to do? I I don't like what's going on uh, in your church. And then all of a sudden a woman walks in, a homeless woman. And she comes in and she kneels at Jesus' feet and she she takes off his boots. And she's in a posture of gratitude and she's crying because she sees that in this man she has renewed hope. And she starts to to wipe his feet and to clean his feet in an act of reverence and honor. It was more scandalous than that. It was more controversial than that. So Jesus and this Pharisee, they continue uh, their conversation as this woman is at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, "Uh, Simon, let me tell you a story. There's two people. One of them owes a lot of money to a lot of people. And they come together and they say, you know what, your debt's forgiven. The other one, he owes $10 to a a money lender. And the guy says, "Hey, hey, don't worry about it. Which one of these two people do you think would be more grateful? And the Pharisee says, well, I suppose the one who had the larger debt forgiven. Jesus said, let me tell you something. Since I walked in this house, you have done nothing for me. You're using me as a theological test to affirm your own self-righteousness. But you see this woman right here? She's got a past, yeah. But she's also got repentance. And she's got a story, but I came for people like her. And so your sins are forgiven. Go in peace, my daughter. Your faith has healed you. This is is the vision that Jesus gives us for relationships. This would have been a completely shocking meal within the context of the time. Here's what Dr. Mark Moore says about this. He says, In a sense, Jesus' subversive message was embodied in his table fellowship. He used meals as a fulcrum for social reconstruction. Truly, Jesus turned these tables into pulpits and used them to reconfigure his world. Jesus preached sermons at a table that we are still talking about 2,000 years later. It's remarkable. The second thing I want to point out is that Jesus was radically inclusive. Now, now, uh, people within the church, when you read through church history, we've we've always wrestled with this idea of inclusion versus exclusion. Uh, People within the church uh, have always had this concern that we may be contaminated by the world. Uh, But but here was Jesus' vision. His vision was that his holiness was stronger than any worldliness. He believed that his holiness was the strongest, most robust force on planet Earth. He, he was not afraid to touch that was what, which was unclean because when he touched it, he had the power to make it clean. He wasn't uh, afraid to associate uh, with the godless. He wasn't uh, afraid to associate with sinners out of fear that they might drag him into the world because he believed that when he associated himself with them, that they would be dragged into the kingdom. This was God's vision of inclusion, and we can do the same. Uh, there's a couple guys that are a part of our church uh, who are new friends of mine who I've come uh, to love. Uh, their names are JP and Michael, and you can go ahead and throw that picture up. Uh, JP is actually here today uh, in church service. And uh, JP and Michael are guys that I met a couple months ago, uh, and they have a really cool story. They're from Uganda, and they uh, were on the Ugandan national lacrosse team. Uh, which is pretty cool. You think about the FIFA World Cup where all the countries come together and play. Uh, They were doing the same thing but for lacrosse, and they came to Colorado. And and during COVID, they they got stuck here. They had some travel uh, delays. And so they end up uh, settling here in Aurora. And JP told me, he said, said, when I came to Colorado, Tim, I had $5 in my pocket. And him and Michael started a landscaping business in Aurora uh, and and are, are still living there today. And JP and Michael are remarkable guys. And what's amazing is, is I, I asked them, I said, how did you come to, to Restoration? How did you hear about us? And they told us a story about Kyle Kempers, uh, our, one of our worship leaders here on the team who you just saw up here on stage. Kyle met them at a bar. And he sees them at a bar and he goes and sits down with them. He starts having a conversation with all these guys from Uganda. And he says, you know what? You guys ought to come check out Restoration. He invited them to the table. He said, he said there's a seat here for you. So, so come on in. Come on in. And now they're here, and this is a picture right after J.P. got baptized a couple weeks ago. Uh, Yeah, you can clap for that. And what's awesome is that J.P. and Michael, uh, now they're starting simple churches with coaches and athletes in the Aurora lacrosse community. Spreading the message of Jesus in his radical vision of inclusion. That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) Clap again. The third thing that I want to point out, and this one is perhaps one of the more difficult ones, is that Jesus made peace. He didn't just keep it. What does it mean to be a peacemaker and not just a peacekeeper? Uh, There's a great book called uh, Braving the Wilderness that Brene Brown wrote years ago. And she had uh, this quote where she said, people are hard to hate up close. Move in. Move in. Uh, Jesus wasn't just doing surface-level conversation. Uh, This wasn't like story time at the table uh, with Jesus. The content of Jesus' discussion was around three things. It was around sin, it was around spiritual health, and it was around forgiveness. And and so be very cautious in your heart uh, this Christmas uh, when you gather around the table with your friends and family not to, to buy into some shallow cultural version of just keeping the peace. It's way deeper than that. Uh, What Jesus is instructing us to do is he's saying, let's gather on the table and let's get to the most acute parts of dysfunction in our hearts and let's see if God can offer anything to those parts. Uh, But before we, we, we evaluate the spiritual health of all the people who are around us, let's look at ourselves and ask, are we healthy before God? Let's deal with the hard parts of our heart and see if we can extend forgiveness to those who deserve forgiveness. Uh, found this definition, Uh, peacekeepers, here's what a peacekeeper does. A a peacekeeper, their primary motivation is fear. They rarely step out of their comfort zones and engage people in a life-giving way. Peacemakers, on the contrary, they are motivated by love, and they will step into unknown territory, and they will get engaged people on their terms. And this is exactly what we see in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, My dad, I love my dad. Um, we have had a rocky relational past. There's just been times in our relationship where we've had a hard time connecting. And my dad loves politics. And, and politics just isn't my thing. It's just not my thing. And don't get me wrong, I think politics is important. Uh, I much prefer the way that we do politics in the United States compared to a lot of other countries around the world. But it's just not like the thing that, that I like to talk about. But you know, sometimes when I go home and the news is on, I'll just sit with my dad and I'll say, Dad, what's, what's going on in the world? Tell me about that politician. What do you think about him? And when I do that, I'm not affirming his political views. I'm not saying that every piece of him is properly moral. All I'm, I'm doing is, is I know that when I have that conversation, it's a bridge to something deeper. It's a portal into restoring that relationship with him. I think we can do the same as followers of Jesus. Now, I, I want to give everybody a word of caution. Um, be very cautious this holiday season as you gather around your loved ones. To guard your heart from a spirit of self-centeredness and self-righteousness because this is precisely what we saw in the Pharisees. Be careful not to let uh, that spirit into your hearts and to pollute what Jesus wants to accomplish through you and your family because the ministry of Jesus was such a place of radical grace and love. Anybody who messed with that vision came under the discipline of God. Came under the discipline of God. Uh, so so res- resist the temptation to be like, yeah, man, I hate those Pharisees. Pharisees freaking suck, right? I'll never be like those Pharisees. No. It's serious. It's it's deep. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if you don't do the table right, if you don't take my vision seriously, you will come under the discipline of God. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, this is the verse that many of you are, are probably familiar with. This is the verse that we always read at communion. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he took the cup. These are the words of institution. But what happens is, is that when we read this, we often take out all the context. All the context. Uh, this was a giant rebuke and correction of the Corinthian church. Uh, this, is, this is people who have got a culture of the world bleeding in and polluting God's vision of restoration. These are people who are steeped in self-centeredness. And so Paul starts this section of the Corinthians off by saying this, just pay attention to this. He says, in the following directive, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. What he's saying is he's like, you're better off not doing church than doing church because the way that you are doing church is damaging people you got to understand the context of this. In the, in the Roman Empire, uh, there, was, there was slave and free. There was men and women. There was rich and poor. But within the walls of the church, it was a place of a new humanity, of one body uh, of people. And what Paul is saying, like, what's your problem? Uh, you guys are coming into church, and you're getting drunk on all the wine. All the rich people are coming in and getting drunk on all the wine. They're eating all the food. So when when the poor people who've been working all day come into the church, they're seeing you passed out on the floor and they're standing in the hallways awkwardly. He goes, what are you guys doing? This is what God says to him. He says, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number have fallen asleep. And I just want you to wrestle with God's word in your heart for a moment. God is disciplining people in the church because they are killing God's mission in the church. Destroying it. And if you're thinking to yourself, God would never do that. You need to read your Bible in context. And my heart in this is not to create a dark Sunday at church. My heart in this is not to say this is how harsh God is. No, no, no. God's vision is more beautiful and more worthy of protection than we could ever comprehend. That's what he's teaching us. And God does this regularly when people begin to mess with the elements. Of the kingdom, uh, some of you guys remember the the year long series that we went through in the book of Acts. You might remember in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four, they had the radical economy. Uh, it, the Bible says that all of God's people were selling their property and their possessions, and they were setting it at the foot of the apostles and the disciples, uh, creating God's economy of radical and distributive grace and charity for for God's people. And then there's one person who who takes some of that and he keeps it aside for himself in, in, in like that he struck dead. And then the Bible says, uh, the young men in the first high school youth group activity of the new church, they drag out the bodies. Hey folks, we got youth group at 5, high schoolers. And at 6 we're doing body dragging. <laughs> I'm using humor to alleviate the tension of the fear of God that just fell in this room 40 seconds ago. <laughs> it's serious. God takes his vision seriously. And the point that I just want to make is this. If there's any self-righteousness in your heart, ask God to deal with it. If there's division in your heart, if there's selfish ambition in your heart, if there's unforgiveness and resentment in your heart, ask God to search your heart. That's why the, the psalmist David, he prayed, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And Lord Jesus, please lead me in the way and the life everlasting. God can help us in our brokenness. And that's why the passage says at the end, it says, you will eat and drink judgment on yourselves if you do it in an unworthy manner. And the unworthy manner is not getting your act together. Uh, be cautious of that. That's not, what, that's not what he's saying. The unworthy manner is not taking God's vision seriously. Uh, there, there's a prayer that we oftentimes pray uh, on our prayer team here at the church. Uh, in Denver as it is in heaven. And we pray it for our places of work, our businesses, our families, our friends. In Wash Park as it is in heaven, in Berkeley as it is in heaven. God, bring your kingdom to the places that we're at. And maybe this Christmas season, this holiday season, uh, with my family as it is in heaven. At the Christmas gathering table as it is in heaven. Just the people that are right in front of you. Sometimes we think to ourselves in in evangelism, I got to go out to the ends of the world. What about the people who are right in front of us, who are in our homes? I just want to give you a couple of handles. Uh, What does this look like for you? Uh, Is there someone that you need to invite in? Is there a a family member, a friend, a neighbor who you could uh, give a a seat at at God's table of grace? Is there some peace that you may need to make with a lost relationship? Some of you have felt what that, that, that pain feels like to lose a relationship. Are there some peace that you need to make? Is there some hardness in your heart that you may need to confront and ask God to help you with? Sometimes that we forget that the picture of heaven in scripture that's most commonly illustrated to us is that of a life-giving banquet feast. Uh, The Bible says that there will be choice meats and fine wines, like, amazing. I I always wonder uh, when when people say to me, uh, I don't really want to go to heaven. I don't really want to hang out on fluffy white clouds. I'm like, where are you getting your intel from, man? You got bad data. That is not what we see uh, throughout Scripture. Um, a, a while back, I, I shared a story with you guys about a retreat that I had gone on to Vermont. Uh, and the the premise of the of the retreat was teaching and prayer, uh, but it was a deeply spiritual experience. And some of you guys have experienced what that feels like. And uh, in, in Vermont, there was a, a, the first night we gathered together it was about thirty people. And this incredible meal served, and it's, uh, there's sommeliers, and there. they're, they're serving like choice meats flown in from around the world, and fresh vegetables and herbs picked from gardens in the region. Like It was absolutely incredible. But, but what was in, uh, amazing about it, and what made it such a powerful spiritual experience, was as we sat around that table with strangers, men and women, a part of God's kingdom, there was tears coming down everyone's faces as we, we talked and we discussed about brokenness and financial struggle and disappointment and hurt, and somebody stood up and just said, this meal was prepared for you because you matter. Because you matter. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, what I would give for my lost friends and family to be sitting at this table with me right now, what I would give for my relationships to the people who are far from God, to experience God's welcome invitation of grace, to experience what it feels like to have your sins forgiven, to know that God is for you and not against you and that he died for you even on your worst day, to experience what that feels like, what I would give for them to be at that table. This is what we offer people. We offer them hope. We offer them restoration. We offer them healing. We're carrying God's mission and vision of restoration Into our community. Alan Hirsch says this. He says, if every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around a table once a week to neighbors and we would eat our way into the kingdom of God. That's a missional strategy that I can get behind. This is why we do simple churches. This is why we gather around the table as a community of saints and a community of believers. Now, I did the math. I'm a math guy. I did the math, okay? This year, In 2023, you will eat 1,095 meals if you're eating three meals per day. This week alone, you'll have 21. Will you give one of them to somebody who needs a seat at God's table? Will you open up your homes and your families? Maybe that person is is right in front of you. It might be a family member, it might be a friend, it might be a neighbor. Uh, If you're really walking in the spirit, it might be the person who bothers you most. And now it doesn't have to be a 40-person banquet table. It can just be a, a Starbucks latte, just saying, hey man, right here, I got something for you. And I just want to sit with you and ask you about yours. Tell me your story. What's hurting you right now? What are you going through? Offer them grace. Show them hospitality. Be Jesus to them. This is an opportunity where we can listen to the Holy Spirit. Uh, the big idea of this whole message is that restoration might be closer than you think. It might be right at your table. All you're doing uh, when you set the table, the table of God for people in your life, is you're giving them an opportunity to meet Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the one who said, I am the bread of life, and when you feast on me, you will never hunger again. Jesus said, I am the water of life, and when you drink from this well, you will never thirst again. That's what we offer people. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus' open invitation of grace reaches all of us, and we can extend that invitation to others. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, uh, I just thank you, God. Um, Gathering in your presence is a, a privilege, Father, that we do not take lightly. God, your grace is so sweet. Thank you that you've given us a reserved seat with our name on it at the the table of God. Thank you, Father, that our eternity is secure, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what you have done for us, Jesus. Not only did you die for us, Jesus, but it was your joy to die for us, to reconcile us back to you. And, Father, motivated by that joy, would we take your vision of restoration? Would you give us the strength to obey, God, to take that vision of restoration into our families, into our homes, and into the people far from God? God, would you bring people to our minds and to our hearts right now, Jesus, who need your grace? And would you give us the strength and the wisdom, Father, to follow you? We surrender this time over to you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.